What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Marcus Collins, an academic, a practitioner, a lecturer of marketing at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. The University of Michigan, Marcus, that's a beast of university, isn't it? It is. You know, so I am a product of the University of Michigan. I got my undergrad here and I did my MBA here. Uh, so I have a lot of love for this institution and believe in all the things it sort of stands for. So it's, I'm extremely fortunate to be in the position that I'm in. How many people attend the University of Michigan? Ooh, I think uh, the population on a yearly basis is about 40,000. Okay. And how many people right now around the US do you think are wearing paraphernalia, including shirts or sweaters from the University of Michigan? That's a good one. I think that the Alumni Association is about a half of a million people. <laughs> there was, was a study was, that was done by the New York Times a few years ago that saw that the school with the most teen pride in, the, in New York City is University of Michigan because the, the people who run around with Michigan shirts on. Yeah. I, look, I was going to say at least one billion Americans are currently wearing University of Michigan paraphernalia because everywhere I go, I see University of Michigan. It's just there. It's just, people are wearing it. It's amazing. So it's interesting that there's research that supports this, uh, this observation. And I'm pretty sure it's a billion Americans. I don't. I, I can only imagine for sure. Yeah, I, I can't count. Um, so I want to talk about, you know, you've made some pretty big life changes. And the last time we met, you were on the verge of making those life changes. And the, the life changes were moving, leaving New York and moving to Detroit because uh, you were in agencies quite a lot back then and leaving the agency world and in some form and moving into the academia world. I just want to talk about all of that. Let's go back to when we first sat down, which we think was about six or seven years ago. What was your experience of working in the agency world at that point? Why were you so, doing it? Did you enjoy it? What were you doing? So I wasn't like uh, trained as an advertiser. I started off as an engineer, studied engineering, uh, material science engineering, because I thought that polymers were super cool. Uh, and I realized as fascinating they were, I don't think cool is the right adjective to describe it. Um, so after undergrad, I went straight to the music industry, did a music startup that did okay until it didn't, went back to school doing my MBA um, and found myself in the, in the world of marketing. Started doing partner marketing at iTunes, and then moved to New York, ran digital strategy for Beyonce before entering into the ad world. And when we crossed paths, I was at Translation, which felt like the perfect place for me. It was the convergence of marketing and culture, right? And those things just felt like exactly what I was meant to do. And I was attracted to, to advertising as a career, as a discipline, because I was all about putting things in the world, putting things in a world that connects people. And I was doing that at a high fidelity and a high uh, proliferation at an agency like Translation, the clients that we were that we were representing. So I was like super happy where I was and, and really excited about the work that, that we were doing on a day-to-day -day basis. But while this was happening, I found myself uh, gravitating to the social sciences. I mean, the way the lore goes, as one would say, as I remember, it was like in the middle of the night um, in 2011 or so, and I had this Jerry Maguire moment that I realized that social is all about people. And I have been thinking about social based upon the technology, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, Snapchat, which wasn't around those days, but I was thinking about it from a technology perspective. And I was at Translation running the social business. Like I built the social department there 
and realizing that moment that everything I knew was only a fraction of reality and I felt like a fraud. And I was like scared. So I'm going to get fired. Like everybody going to figure out that I'm, I'm a fraud and I'm going to get fired. So I started to invest myself in the social sciences to understand, well, why do people do what they do? What is social? If social is all about people, then why do, what are the underlying physics of human behavior? And that started to, to kind of sway me towards academia as a, I would say, a knowledge, curiosity, and using advertising as a vehicle to apply those conceptual theories that I learned. Mm. I think when we first met, the Brooklyn Nets were just about to start, right? I think that's the time, the NBA team, the Brooklyn Nets, we were just about to start. And I think we talked about that. And, and for those who don't know, Translation was set up by a guy called Steve Stout, who I think has managed a ton of rappers, including Nas, Life's a B, and then your D, that, that Nas. And um, we talked a lot about, I think, in the early days of that agency, the, the browning of America or the tanning of America. I hope I didn't get those words wrong in a the shitty way. So apologies if I'm misremembering things. <laughs> no, you um, got it. Ten of America. That's good. Yeah. And, and it's really interesting because the idea of putting things into the world that you happen to do through the, through the agency. I mean, I spent some time in, in music as well. There, there's that music world. You kind of get addicted to that, you know, whether you're making music or writing about it or putting on events, you kind of, there's a, there's a freedom to it. You just have an idea and you go do it, you execute. And sometimes I think people who've existed in that kind of world where you, every day is about putting stuff into the world. Um, they have to learn how to calibrate and slow down a little bit in a more, slightly more bureaucratic or sometimes very bureaucratic uh, environment. I mean, and it's interesting to, to hear that you put an MBA, you punctuated that shift from the music world to the agency world with an MBA. Uh, why did you do an MBA? And I, and I ask because I, I'll get a question every couple of weeks of someone who wants to you know, advance further in the industry or maybe make a, a leap from one department, especially into a brand strategy kind of role. And the question is like, should I do an MBA or what kind of additional studies should I do? So why did you do it? And did the MBA meet your expectations? So uh, the MBA was basically like pressing restart on my life. And the, I started this company with another ex-engineer from the University of Michigan who had an affinity towards entertainment and music. Neither of us had a, a business background. So we're making decisions based on instinct. And some of those decisions worked out. A lot of them did not either. And when the company started to um, unwind, thanks in part to the disruption in the music industry known as digital, you know, I, did, I thought to myself, I need to figure out what's happening in the world of music if I'm going to stay in this industry. And I thought that business would be the best way to do that. So going to business school really kind of set restart on my career and providing you know, new lenses for me to see the world. And I went into business school with the expectation that I'm going to develop this business acumen that I could take back to my company that was unwinding and either rebuild it or build anew, or at the very least, go work for a company that was leading the disruption, which is why I was excited about going to Apple. Mm. Now, as far as meeting expectations, you know, I had no business, no business experience so I was just a sponge. I, mean, I was just soaking up everything. It was interesting. And I went to business school. I felt like the dumbest person on the planet. Like I was like, all these people had done all these great things, have accomplished all this amazing stuff. And I wrote love songs for a living <laughs> before I got to business school. So I felt very much out of, out of place. But my two years there like, really provided me with a language, with a means by which I could look at problems and solve them leveraging what I knew as an engineer, applying logic to problem solving. And it provided me a lot of confidence to be in business 
context and have discussions that were meaningful and push the conversation further. So two years doing an MBA, is that that's part-time or full-time? Full-time. So I, I just full-time. unplugged and went straight, straight in full-time. And I think that mm-hmm. the MBA is, it's not for everybody. And truthfully, I, I don't think that the trajectory is always what it's meant to, what people think it's going to be. The MBA is designed to provide people exposure to all these different facets of business, especially if it's a general management program, all these different facets of business to arm you with like foundational skills, some jargon language so you can talk business and make sense of the business world. And then you go into the world and, and, and practice. But a lot of the career paths come out of business school are designed for scale. Right, mm-hmm. business schools are um, are ranked based. One of the ranking criteria is about job placement. So, you know, the school has gone to great lengths to develop relationships with consulting. That being a track, brand management, particularly CPGs. That being a track, um, investment banking. That being a track, or or um, or finance. That being a track, and these things have been you know established in such a way that people come out of the school with a job. And if you aren't going in those tracks, it could be pretty difficult for you, like myself. <laughs> Interesting. I feel like within those words, you were starting to write a complicated love song about the MBA. <laughs> have you ever written a love song about your MBA? I have not. I've not. And I'll, if, if I'll, the, collab- I'll collaborate with you on it. it it's, I, we will borrow from it's a thin line between love and hate. That's what we'll sample because mm-hmm. that's probably the feeling of it. Yeah, that, that MBA decision or doing any kind of further uh, education, I think it's interesting because I think it's important to be aware of why you want to do it. A, a lot, I think a lot of people do it because they think that they're just lost. Uh, some do it because they, they really do see it as a thing that they have to do to get to the next part of their career because that's what they're told and maybe they believe it and that's a, that's a correct thing to believe based on their circumstances. Uh, some people do that and, and sometimes it could be a form of procrastination. They might want to start a business and I know there are different kinds of MBAs where entrepreneurship's more a part of it than it would have been 10 or 15 years ago. But sometimes it's a form of procrastination because you just could spend that time and money if you've got the money or the debt uh, creating a thing. You know, were there other kind of, if you think about the people in your cohort, I love that word, in your, in your crew of people doing the MBA, what were some of the other kind of use cases uh, of an MBA that, uh, that we don't always talk about? I find that it, there are typically two primary boxes. There are, I want to make more money, and this is a way to, to bump up my salary by 20, 30, 40K, and or, so not binary, I want to change, I want to change careers. Like I want to switch from this industry to that industry or discipline. Like I used to be in marketing, now I want to do banking. And oftentimes because I'm not fulfilled by marketing or not fulfilled by accounting or whatever one was doing beforehand. Um, and this seems to be more exciting and there is more upward trajectory from a financial perspective as well as uh, career placement. Those are typically like the two big buckets. But the ones you named are driving motivators that aren't awfully talked about <laughs> because people aren't usually you know, willing to be vulnerable enough to say, man, I'm just here to just kind of figure it out. You know, we write these like poetic statements about why we want to come to business school in an effort to convince the school that we should be there. But oftentimes we're writing those things to convince ourselves why this is the right decision to make. Um, And you find when the market is going well, people don't go to business school as much to get an MBA. But when the market is down, that's when people do. Mm -hmm. 
All right, let's go to the last time we met face-to-face. We were sitting in Midtown talking about all the things we had in common and the agency world, the music world, living in New York, etc. And uh, shortly after that, you made the decision to leave New York, essentially to leave the agency industry, potentially to leave the industry and move into academia. What happened? How did you make these very, very big decisions? had this amazing run at translation. Like I said, we launched the Brooklyn Nets, launched the Maine American Music Festival, launched the Cliff Paul campaign for State Farm, like all these amazing things. And then my wife and I uh, got pregnant and we had our, our first daughter in November 2014 and it changed everything for me. We had our daughter, Georgia. It just changed my expectation of work, that work had to be more than just a paycheck now, that I had to be really intrinsically rewarded uh, for the time that I've spent away from her. So I did two, two months paternity leave, which was awesome. I mean, I felt so bonded to her from doing it. So when I got back to work, it was a bit of a challenge for me. I still love translation and the work that we were doing, but I wanted more. And at that time, I had been teaching a little bit, teaching at Miami Ad School in, in Brooklyn, doing work, uh, teaching at Hyper Island. I had just gotten an appointment with NYU teaching. So I found myself like really intrinsically rewarded in the classroom while also excited about putting things in the world. But the time that I spent away from home, like the stakes were much higher. And when we thought about the world that we wanted to curate for our daughter, Georgia, we didn't think we could do that in New York. Because quite frankly, we lived in Riverdale in the Bronx, which is like the best kept secret in New York as far as I'm concerned. Um, And my office was, the translation office was in Midtown in Times Square, unfortunately. So it would take me about 40 minutes to get to the office. And you know, I when I was waking up in the morning, my daughter was just waking up as I was walking out the door. So I'd kiss her and be out the door. And then when I come home, she'd be in my my wife's arms falling asleep. And I quickly realized that I was a weekend dad, that I got no time with my daughter, who I'd spend every day with for, for two months. And my wife and I just said, this is not the life that we want for her and for ourselves. And being a Detroit native, a Michigan native, um, and my wife and I met at business school, we kind of glamorized or fantasized, wouldn't it be awesome to raise kids in Ann Arbor? And once we realized our new reality with Georgia after my paternity leave, it became less of a fantasy and more of a, we got to do this. So I ended up leaving New York and leaving translation to run the social practice at an agency here in Detroit called Donor. So Donor brought me to Detroit, but the goal was always to get my foot back into academia. And what better place to do that than my alma mater, the University of Michigan. And that really sort of set the stage for where I am today. Got it. I, look, I reckon, first of all, when Drake has his first kid, it's, he's going to release an album that's going to be called Weekend Dad, and it'll, it'll, <laughs> it'll contemplate some of these uh, same topics, but just with you know, a beat and an interesting whatever. I don't know what I'm talking about. It's a um, singing hook, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh God, I'm so pedestrian in how I describe music these days. There will be drums and music in the song, <laughs> and it will be, the album will be called Weekend Dad. I, I kind of peaked early uh, by right. quoting you back to yourself. Can you tell us anything else about the, you know, either the months before Georgia was born or just after, are there, are there certain things that you experienced or thought that you don't think 
people around you or society talks enough about? And I'll, I'll give you an example because it's a bit of a vague question, but I've spoken to you know guys over the years who've, who've had babies, so heterosexual men who've had babies in a heterosexual coupling, um, and they've often found it hard to go back to work because it, it's like, this just doesn't seem real compared to this amazing thing that we just gave birth to. And that can be something that they're either not allowed to think or that they're, that they're not, they don't find, uh, they don't find it easy to talk about. Are there any ideas like that that sort of popped into your head through this journey that you found it hard to talk about with other people? It was, it was sobering in that way. Once she came here, like once she was in my arms, like nothing mattered. Like the fact that we would, you know, we would fixate over, you know, a launch that didn't go as great as it's supposed to be or supposed to had, it didn't matter at all to me. It was like, why are we even talking about this? Like, this is so much more, more important. So the priority shift came like the minute that I held her. But I will tell you something that no one told me about that had become an, uh, a driving force as I think about my career is that when my wife and I were pregnant and as it was getting real, more and more real, like to say a couple of months out, I realized that if I lost my job at the time, my wife wasn't working, that if I lost my job, we would have no financial stability, right? So like I'm the, the main breadwinner for the house in New York, which you know is super expensive. Mm-hmm. But if something never happened, we lost a client or, you know, Stout decided we're done with this guy, like it would completely upend my family. And I couldn't sleep at night with that. Like I just like, there's no way that I can put my family's stability in the hands of one person. So in my mind, I knew that I can never just have one job that I would always have to have multiple streams of revenue in the event that something happens. Now that revenue may not be able to match or overcome the primary gig, in this case, advertising, but just knowing that I won't be at zero, should something go wrong, help me sleep at night. And this became a, a large provocation in how I would work since then, the five years since then, right? Like I believe in a portfolio career. Like you'll never see me with just one job. And your portfolio now, so you've obviously got the academic world, you do keynote speaking. What what else is in this portfolio? Yeah, so I still do advertising. I, I teach, but I teach at multiple places. So my primary appointments here at the University of Michigan, but I also teach at BU in the summers, Boston University. I teach at Notre Dame for their executive MBA program. I go to the Luxembourg School of Business to teach in their um, executive MBA program. I do a lot of speaking gigs. I do workshops for, for companies. And then I consult as well. Right? Mm-hmm. And for me, A, it provides you know, some sense of stability in my head that there are contingency plans in the event that something wrong happens. But more so what I realize is that it is this duality or this, this multiplicity of of different ways to exercise my my competence and my capabilities that makes me feel fulfilled as a practitioner. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't imagine today not being in the classroom, nor could I imagine not putting things in the world or speaking. And it's the alchemy of those three things that I think provides for me a fulfilling career. Yeah, I mean, they'd be some of the words I'd use to describe the stuff I love to do as well. And I mean, academic world's interesting right now in that, you know, I feel like a lot of, I know a lot of colleges are struggling. 
but a lot of them are just taking over their cities. They own huge percentages of the real estate of the cities. They keep growing. Uh, and at the same time, I feel like the workforces there don't have a lot of stability unless they have tenure. And that increasingly the money, from what I understand, is going into administrative roles to often make the powers that be feel more powerful. And then they're kind of moving to more of a part-time adjunct professorship model. I had someone in New York a few years ago suggest that I would, you know, well ask whether I would do a, a semester of teaching for $4,000 as an adjunct professor. And that's crazy. That's like less than 10 bucks an hour. And I pointed that out and the person said, well, you'd have to really care about teaching to do that. I'm like, oh, wrong person to have said that to. But I, I, I it's crazy. <laughs> like you kind, of, you, you kind of have to have this portfolio mentality. So, because you just don't know what's going to come and go, right? It's true. It's true. You know, and there are there are a lot of unions in the the greater higher education category that are trying to fight that battle. So you're right. You know, it is cost effective for adjuncts and and part time faculty to come in and teach because it removes a a large uh, financial strain on the the institutions. The flip side to that though is that students love having practitioners in the classroom because it's not all theory and conceptual, right? So that's another chance, that's, like, that's actually like the benefit of it, yet those people aren't being compensated well, especially at like smaller schools to try to offset the cost by bringing in um, reading adjuncts. Now for me, I started as an adjunct as well because like I wasn't doing it for the money at all. Like I was being you know paid well in the advertising side of the world and just having something coming in you know, helped me sleep well at night. But to your point, you know, the pay wasn't very uh, rewarding. It wasn't very handsome, at least until I got to the University of Michigan. That changed things quite a, quite a bit. But now being a full-time faculty member, there are far more benefits that come from that. But it took a lot to get in the door for sure. Yeah, it's, it's funny because every now and then I've, I've heard, uh, well, you wouldn't do this for the money. And I'm like, your college charges, I don't know, 30 to 50 grand a year. Does your college not do it for the money? Like who, who gets to decide who gets to do what for the money? I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy. It's weird. Now, it is weird. Yeah, totally. 2008, 2009 smashed Michigan, at least Detroit, right? Again, you moved there a few years after it got, you know, the automotive industry got, I mean, it had huge problems, right? I don't want to use the wrong, the wrong verb. What was the mood like when you arrived back in Michigan six so, or so years ago? So I graduated right in the middle of the recession. I graduated in 2009 with my MBA. So I'm like right in the thick of like hard times. And shortly after those hard times, Detroit went into bankruptcy. So those were, those were really tough days for, for the state and particularly the Southeast Michigan uh, region. But when I came back to Detroit, it was an unbelievable spirit of optimism here. So the, the city bounced back from bankruptcy. There were companies coming in you know, Quicken Loans had you know extended itself throughout throughout the city. There's a lot of optimism, and I find that here that the city of Detroit today is not the city of Detroit that I grew up in, and it's both good and bad. There's you know there's positive consequences and negative consequences to it, but the the spirit here is that there's so much opportunity, and people are very very uh, have a lot of zeal about trying to extract all of it, mm-hmm. which I think is pretty awesome. What do you miss about your New York lifestyle? Um, you know, I miss the most my proximity to culture. You know, while 
my wife and I lived in Riverdale, which isn't like the most happening spot um, in the five boroughs. Like, I feel like I was always in close proximity to to different cultures based on, you know, I watched what people eat, where they talk, what they how they dress, how they act. And being so close to it allowed me to kind of practice empathy, to better understand people, which makes me a better practitioner as a marketer, as you know. And just being close to, to culture, like understanding what's going on, kind of your, 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 your hand on the pulse of what's happening. Here in Ann Arbor, which is where I live now, like we live on a cul-de-sac. And when I drive to Detroit, I drive in my, you know, in my Volkswagen vehicle in a very curated environment. Like everything is curated. And I have to make really big overtures to be close to culture like I once was when I was living in New York. Just riding the train, you get exposed to so many different things that you normally don't get. So I really miss that in, in the, the city. Mm. And Ann Arbor, is it fair to say that a lot of that area was this is quite a big German influence and German breweries and beer and food in, in the northern part of Michigan. Is that correct? So and that's like in the Grand Rapids area. So that's on the west side of the state. So we're in the southeast side of the state, which is basically like Ann Arbor is Ann Arbor is a college town that operates without the college as well. Sort of like um, Austin and Berkeley and even Columbus, Ohio. Uh, these places, they... Um, like they're like oasis in a lot of ways um, and everything that's surrounding it. So Ann Arbor is about 45 minutes Southwest of, of Detroit. And it's ridiculously diverse from an ethnicity perspective, not so diverse from a socioeconomic perspective. Um, the, 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 the level of intelligence in, in the town is, is very, very high, which for me is satiating but also it's just an awesome place to raise kids. And, mm. you know, coming here for us was about like the lifestyle we wanted to curate. And interesting enough, when we got here, my thinking was that I want to work at donor nine to five, maybe I'll, you know, teach a class or two somewhere down the road, which would be great. But this is about just kind of being home and like, you know, we're settling for a quieter life. And that was not the case at all <laughs> in, a, in the best way possible. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. So, I mean, uh, my geographic call, geographic reference you know, growing up is obviously Australia. There are not many large cities there, a huge part of it's desert. And I did, I did think Ann Arbor was closer to the water. I'm now looking it up probably. I've looked it up before and I'm embarrassed that I didn't realize how close to Detroit, to Detroit it is. But the funny thing is that you have Toronto, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Columbia, Columbus, Indianapolis, Chicago, Milwaukee, probably within, is it like a two-hour drive or less? Yeah, Chicago's three hours, Indiana's three, okay. four hours. So it's like right in a four-hour density, Cleveland's three hours and change. It's right next to a lot of these um, uh, these cities that were like, for instance, like Cleveland, that were big cities that you know downsized or huge metropolis that continue to grow like uh, Chicago. And Toronto, good grief. Like Toronto's awesome. And it's a four hour drive from, from Detroit. Four hours. All right. So not only did I get Ann Arbor's placement wrong, I got the, my, my drive predictions weren't very good today either. But <laughs> It's all good. I, I find it funny as well because Toronto is not even that far from New York, but I hardly ever hear about it. I know, you know, and the only reason why I am so familiar with, with Toronto is that being in Detroit, like we're literally like just the water away, like a river, Detroit River away from Canada. So growing up, once we were 18 years old, we would go over the bridge or through the tunnel to go party in Canada. So we spent a lot of time in Windsor 
Um, and there used to be a big event in Toronto. I don't know if it still happens, the Carabana, where like everyone in the area would go to Carabana because it was this amazing, amazing uh, festival that would happen in Toronto in the summer. And it was just really good time. So I got a chance to get familiar with Toronto in my, my adolescence, if you will. So are you, are you doing much of your own academic research right now or is it more teaching and talking? Yeah. So as I started to, when I came back to Michigan, I'm at donor kind of, you know, finding my sea legs there, start putting some things in the world there, really happy what's going on there. And I started teaching at Michigan and what started as one class became two classes, became three classes and then four classes. And, you know, I just found myself you know, spending just as much time in academia as I was in the world of, of advertising and falling in love with the, with the academic side, so much so that I decided to pursue my doctorate. So I'm in the middle of, of finishing my, my, uh, my doctoral degree at the moment hmm. because the more I understood the underlying physics of human behavior, understanding the conceptual theoretical foundation by which action is described, it made me a better practitioner. And the better I was at practicing putting things in the world, the more curious I became. The more curious I became, the more I'd read and the more I'd research. It became this cyclic thing that informed my work, my teaching, and my speaking. So I went after the doctorate to not only get like my union card, if you will, I'll say that in air quotes, to like mm-hmm. teach full time, but also I just had this insatiable curiosity about why things are the way they are, particularly when it comes to, to marketing and culture. So I'm like knee deep in in the the scholarship and knee deep in my research project at the moment. Can you talk about the research project? Like what's oh yeah, totally. Of? Happily. So I'm studying social contagion within consumer between uh, consumer culture, particularly consumer culture theory. And it's this idea that people not only subscribe to uh, buying activity, that we, like, we buy similar things like people who are like ourselves, but also there are cultural characteristics that guide the behavior of what is normal for that. So say, for instance, if you're a hip hop head or rather if you're a sneaker head, you don't just buy sneakers because you love sneakers. There are cultural characteristics of what it means to be a sneaker head, right? Mm. So I'm studying social contagion within hip hop culture to see why do brands not only are constructed and consecrated as being cool and hip, but how do these things propagate between people who are within the culture as well? All right, right. Uh, I mean, I spent a little bit of time around the Australian hip hop culture and we, were, we had a pretty strong idea about the nuances within it. So when you're describing hip hop culture in 2020, what is hip hop culture? Well, that's the thing. Hip hop culture is so splintered as far as what is quote unquote real hip hop. If people look at like, you know, uh, quote unquote mumble rappers and say that's not hip hop, but this is the evolution of hip hop, right? So the scholars would say that hip hop is founded on the four principles MCing, DJing, tagging, and breaking. And over the years comes with that attitude, a style of dress. Uh, gesturals, uh, language, uh, symbols, and semiotics that signal that I am hip hop. And the alchemy of these things are said to represent the culture. And today's hip hop um, is far more um, vulnerable than it ever has been, right? People talk about their feelings and not look like a, a, a wuss, right? And even if you are a wuss, you can still be the biggest hip hop artist on the planet, i.e., Drake. One would say that Drake is super emo and 
if this if Drake came out in the 90s, he'd be clowned, right? Because it was so antithetical to the culture mm. of hip hop. Yet today, you know, he's the biggest hip hop artist. Or think of Jay Z, you know, back in the 90s, I never give my heart to a woman, not for nothing, never happened. I'd be forever macking. But then three years ago, he released an, an album, uh, 444, where he talks about like his, his guilt and, and shame about infidelity and not being a good husband and trying to be a better dad. Like this is where the, the, the culture has, has evolved. Now, whether it's good or bad, it's all dispositional, but this is kind of what culture does. It evolves or it dies. And hip hop is continuing to evolve in this way. Yeah, it's funny. I don't know if you know this. We probably talked about it, but I did this hip hop radio show magazine. I spent like three hours with Flavor Flav when I was 19, wrote it up and Vice Canada gave me $50 for, for printing it. Uh, a long, long time ago, interviewed like Chuck D, Guru from Gangstar, like a lot of, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of people. Uh, and I was always really interested in the wordplay and the ideas, but as a young dude growing up, uh, you had to embrace some of the other stuff. You had to have a, a physical presence, let's call it, um, which you could express through your fashion and you had to, you know, you could wear certain types of clothing, etc. And then the whole four elements thing, you know, breaking, graffiti, DJing and seeing. It was interesting because there was a period of, you know, in my mid twenties where I went to a few events and it was like, it became this really dogmatic thing that you'd be at this like local event, music event. And all of a sudden there'd be a bunch of drunk dudes running around just going, the four elements, the four elements. <laughs> and, and honestly, it just, it felt really fascist, like a, felt, felt like a fascist rally at times. And um, it really, it kind of turned me off from going to some of the events where that stuff happened because it, it didn't happen everywhere. But when it did, I was like, this is crazy. Because often the people doing that would try to control younger people in their teens. They'd school them on what was real, was not real, which crews to like, who not to like, possibly even who to get into fights with or who to stab and things like that. It could, it could actually get to that, that place. Not all the time, but a little bit, right? And uh, it, really, it really turned me off. And when I had kids, 28, and I went to an event that was very much like that, I was like, yeah, this is crazy. I don't know what phase we've just entered, but I don't really like it. Now that's Australia. I'm sure it's not you know, like that everywhere here, although I guess SoundCloud rap is, and that scene is, is known for a little bit of a punch on. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, how do, how do you feel being a, more of a grown-up these days analyzing something that you grew up with? Well, to your point, it's easy to say this ain't hip hop, right? Like when I think about the golden era of hip hop by or the time, like the moments where I really found myself, my identity aligned with hip hop, it's in like the native tongue, like De La Soul, Tribe Called Quest. Like I love, like that's like that boom bap hip hop is like the hip hop that I absolutely love. And the golden era, as far as far as I'm concerned, like those late 80s, early 90s, mid 90s. But just like anything else, if I try to be a purist and not allow the art form to evolve, then the art form would surely die. And this is less people being pure about the art form and more of them being resistant to change. And this is what we know of the literature and the, the cultural literature, the sociology literature is that culture is constantly evolving because culture lives within a broader social context. And while the social context has continued to negotiate and construct new meaning for things, how we feel about certain topics, because those things continue to shift, culture has to move forward or people will age out of the culture, right? They either age out of the culture because what I once loved is no longer here, so I, I back away, or I am no longer the person 
that sees the world the way this culture does. Therefore, I can't be here. Mm. Right. Um, so I think about like I uh, think about heavy metal. If you look at heavy metal artists today, they look exactly the way they looked like in the 80s. The look, the aesthetic, everything still looks exactly the same. How many people are heavy metal band fans? Not as many as they used to be in the Def Leppard days, right? The art form never evolved. Uh, the music never evolves or hardly evolves. Hip hop, look at hip hop in the 70s. We had like Grandmaster Flash wearing like leather and like, you know, fur <laughs> to uh, you fast forward to, uh, to like the, the mid 80s, like Big Daddy Kane, people wearing track suits like in like uh, Run DMC. Fast forward to the late 80s, you got um, NWA wearing all black. Fast forward to the late 90s, you got, you know, puffy and shiny suits. Um, fast forward to the early 2000s, people are wearing throwback jerseys. Fast forward to the mid 2000s, people are wearing suits. And now people are wearing, you know, tight jeans and velour jackets and, you know, uh, Versace shirts, etc. Like the culture is constantly changing its aesthetic and its language, its, its, its beliefs, the artifacts and the norms. And it's because of this is why the culture is able to attract as many people as it does and continue to live. Mm. I feel like that's a, a nice way to end this interview because we're talking about adapting and you've adapted to different cities, different places, different, uh, this idea of a portfolio career. And I, there is, I think there is something that if you grow up around, around hip hop, that you are looking at how to bring new things in, things that are in culture into the music or into whatever you're creating. And you, you do have to constantly adapt, even though there is like a dogmatic fascist element into it, you know, like just trying to keep it real. What do you mean? Trying to keep it real. What do you mean? Trying to keep it real. What do you mean? The four elements. You're like, dude, just have an independent thought. Totally cool. Um, <laughs> but it, it's interesting to see that, you know, that adaptation sort of thread its way through your philosophy in life as well. And I, I'd love to read that doctorate if that's possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think, um, you know, if anything hip hop has taught me is that it's the, um, it's the bringing together disparate things that allows us to create new. We sample from this record, get drums from that record, pull from this and then add our own thing to it. And this is how innovation is created. And if you look at the sociology literature, a guy by the name of Levi Strauss talked about this bricolage, this exact same thing, taking things that are normally disparate to create something anew. Um, and I like to believe that my career, though unknowingly and unintendedly, has been the result of bricolage. Mm, bricolage, love it. Marcus, where's the best place for people to find you on the internet? You can go to my website, marktothec.com, M-A-R-C-T-O-T-H-E-C.com, or follow me on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at marktothec. Love it. I hope we get to see each other in the flesh again sometime. We should organize that. But I really appreciate you being here on Sweathead today, Marcus. Best wishes with everything in the future. Thank you, sir. Much appreciated. Peace.